as we look to the Lord now in prayer. Now, Father, what we're thanking you for is that in the midst of this gathering of all the services, as well as the live stream taking place, that you're honored, that you are preeminent, that you are first in our lives. It's you that matters most. You are the one who puts all things in perspective. There's a warmth to this story. A young woman would travel such distance to be able to experience a fellowship in, in Christ. What we're asking, Father, is that in a very unique way, if there's anybody in any of the services today or those that are live streaming, that are needing this added sense of what a passage like this offers. Their hearts are going to become enriched. They're going to be stirred. They're going to long for Jesus. So, Father, these moments together are important. Not only what's happening in this second service and the live stream, but also what's happening right now in Cafe 19 minister to Robert as he shares, as well as in all the various classrooms throughout this building, including in the sanctuary. We want Jesus Christ to be central. So Father, we're asking now that once again that you would, you would warm these hearts, that you would engage these minds, that you would shape these wills. Come here, Father, again now to see Jesus him only. And we're praying these things still again now in, in Jesus' name. Amen. It's been known throughout American history as the great promise walk. You'll see why. Some of us know the story of William Penn and the time in which he was involved in intense conversation, if not negotiations, with the Indians. He was the founder of the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, where I once lived, well-liked by the Indians. Well, he was told after a period of time that he could have as much land, as much of their land as he could, as he could encompass on foot in a single day of walking took him up on it. So early the next morning, he started out, and he walked, and he walked, and he walked, continued to mark his steps as he, as he went. And then when he finally went in to claim his land, the Indians were, well, they were, they were surprised because, well, first of all, they didn't think he would take the promise seriously. And second of all, they didn't think he would put in that kind of effort. But he did, and they kept their promise. And they gave him this large area, which today is part of the city of Philadelphia. For you see, William Penn simply believed the promise that they had given him. 
passage you and I are looking at today has to do with a promise walk. Mary is going to walk a long distance, 80 to 100 miles, expectant. And as she does so, she's making her way southward, making her way southward to a village in which a woman by the name of Elizabeth, a relative of hers, resides. What we're going to do now is look very carefully at this promise walk that Mary found herself on. She was a woman who, in faith, put her trust in this promised one. And what we want to do is to draw out still two more aspects to this story of Christ's birth that's unfolding in front of our very eyes. And so, beginning with verse 39 through verse 41, first part of it, as well as verse 44, second part of it, two aspects. Note, first of all, with me, that as you and I, as we consider the story of Christ's birth unfolding here, note, first of all, the fellowship found here through Jesus Christ. Appears on the screen. We're told that it's in those days. And you say, well, Gary, in what days are those days? Well, these are in the days in which Gabriel has already announced not only to Zechariah that, that there would be a baby forthcoming, be the forerunner of the Messiah, but furthermore, Mary herself, though virgin, would be expectant with child. We're going to see now how two narratives converge. The narrative on one hand of John the Baptist, with parents of Zechariah, priest, and Elizabeth advanced in years, past the childbearing time period, a miraculous birth, God intervenes. One narrative. The other narrative over here, Mary, virgin, roughly in the age of which, well, she would be attending our youth group right now. That's the sort of age group we're talking about here, you see. But what we see, furthermore, is that virgin, but nonetheless, has been given the promise by God that she would conceive the Messiah. What do you do when you are given good news? In this particular case, what I want you to see now is what we'll call this morning the promise walk. Because in an act of faith, now, Mary begins her movement towards the house of Elizabeth, where we're going to see two narratives converge in that household where John the Baptist and the Messiah Jesus Christ will be under one roof. So you and I are told here that Mary, after having received this information from Gabriel, and she had responded, as we noted at the end of last week, these words, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Be it to me according to your word, which is an extraordinary incentive for you and me likewise to live for the Lord. According to your word, it was when she went on public record with that statement that the angel then departed, as we saw in verse 38. So in those days, Mary arose. It's a favorite expression of 
the physician Luke, the word arose, appears numerous times in both Luke as well as in Acts. Notice furthermore, though expectant, she, she went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. Where is she headed? Well, she's heading to the house of Zechariah, and she greets Elizabeth. Well, what we want to do is to get our bearings at this point. So again, you pull out your favorite Bible atlas. I'll do the same. I took the Moody Bible atlas with me when I made this trek. And notice furthermore here now that here in the Galilean region, you've got Mary and Joseph's hometown, Nazareth. You've spent time there in Nazareth. You are taking in the sights and the sounds of this highly Arab setting, the city of Nazareth. Had your fill hummus, making your way southward now. And we're told here that Mary traveled roughly 80 to 100 miles. Now, here's a curiosity. She's traveling alone? Someone of this age? You know, this journey is filled with danger. This is high risk. You know, the story about the Good Samaritan and so forth. And so there's a threat to one's safety. There's a threat to one's security. Even in this walk, she's going to have to be dependent upon the promise of God and his fulfillment. There's where your security is found. God's word. She's trusting God at this point. She makes her way further southward to the home of Zacharias and Elizabeth. Now let's say that you and I, we've spent time in Jerusalem, and now we hop on our bus, and we're going to make our way southwest into a setting which today is known as Ain Karam. You see it right there. And as you move into Ain Karam, there is a church known as the Church of Visitation that's found there. Let's take a look at the picture. You get off your bus, and you're standing there, and you're beginning to take in the sights, the Church of the Visitation. And this is a setting that is dedicated to the visit by which Mary came that distance to enter into the household of Elizabeth. You begin to walk around the grounds. You enter into the building and look at the picture that you're going to see next on the screen that unfolds in front of you. It is a picture of Elizabeth and Mary. Notice in this particular case captures the attention of the, of the individual. I stood just a few feet away from this, drinking in the passage of scripture of the description found in Luke chapter 1, pondering the distance that Mary would have taken on Trusting in the promise that God had delivered and the promised one is now within her. She's going to have to feel secure in God's providence that she will be safe even though there's a threat, a dangerous threat to one's security making this trek. Again, did she go alone? All we know, all we know at this point is that she entered into Elizabeth's 
What's also interesting about this is that John the Baptist is about six months along in the pregnancy of Elizabeth, ending the second trimester. What I want you to understand at this point, and you don't need a biology major for this, even though that was mine. Most likely, Mary has conceived within the last three or four days the trek. Which means then, Jesus Christ is what we call in biology in zygotic form, a zygote. So bear in mind now the stage of development within these two wombs. Do we have another picture that appears on the screen? Not? Okay, back to the text. Look carefully then at what's occurring here. She entered the house of Zechariah. Go back now to the text itself. Greets Elizabeth at this point. Notice with me that Mary, who has put her faith and trust, you see, in this promised one, Messiah, that she carries within her own womb, has taken the personal initiative. When you and I receive the word of God, we take initiative. We act upon what God's word says. She has received word via Gabriel. She acts upon what God's word has been delivered to her. So now what we see is extraordinary fellowship beginning to occur where there is a convergence of two narratives there is the connection of two lives, not merely, though, the connection of the lives of Elizabeth and Mary, but the connections at a deeper level beneath the surface, the connections of John the Baptist, Jesus Christ. Something's happening beneath the surface. Don't expect God to do everything what I'll call above the surface. You're going to have to trust God for what we might describe as beneath the surface realms. Where he's doing some things that are hidden to the human eye. It's time for coffee, of course. So, Joe and I, we are, we're seated, his wife Jess... And we're having a conversation as we're looking out at the Brooklyn Bridge. And I'm thinking about David McCullough's book at this point, The Great Bridge. It's a fascinating story about the construction of the Brooklyn Bridge. It connects Manhattan, where Jess has worked, to Brooklyn, where Joe was a doctor. We're told that in 1872, the chief engineer of the project wrote these words. To such of the general public as might imagine that no work had been done on the New York Tower because they see no evidence of it above the water. I simply remarked that the amount of the masonry and concrete laid on that foundation during the past winter beneath the surface, under the water, is equal in quantity to the entire masonry of the Brooklyn Tower visible today above the waterline. 
contemporize the analogy. Too many people in the culture look for God to do something what I'll call above the waterline, visible to the human eye. But what God is doing at this point is something that is not visible. No ultrasound here. It's beneath the waterline. Yet God is at work, and what we see are two women who are responding to God's promise and demonstrating extraordinary faith that's evident now in their fellowship. And what is biblical fellowship? Sharing not only something with one another, but sharing in that someone with one another, and that someone is Messiah. Jesus, and Jesus Christ. Elizabeth sharing her home with this travel-weary young lady who's expecting. But furthermore, now, Mary is sharing Jesus in that home with Elizabeth. And what is Zechariah thinking of at this point anyways? Who, when he posed the question to Gabriel with regard to a miraculous birth, John the Baptist, his question was the question, you see, of skepticism. While Mary's, when she was given information, hers was the question of surprise. When you ask questions, is it the question of skepticism, of unbelief, or is it the question of surprise such as, why me, God? You've been so good to me so gracious to me that you would even think of me. You're so overwhelmed by it all, you see. Just think about that when Robert was in my office and spending time the other day. He was overwhelmed with a sense of God's grace. Why me? That you would save me. Notice the reaction here in verse 41. When Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. Couple that now with the second portion of verse 44. Elizabeth's interpretation of that leap. The baby in my womb leaped for joy. Now, I want you to consider where we're at in the stage of child development within the wombs. Again, you don't have to be a biology major to process this. You've got John the Baptist completing the second trimester. He's in the womb of Elizabeth. You've got Jesus Christ all of three or four days, perhaps, within the womb of Mary. This stage is known as the zygotic stage. He's the zygote. Beneath the surface of it all, what we see is the personhood of John the Baptist. Do you see the pro-life development here in this passage of Scripture? Within the womb of Elizabeth, the personhood, John the Baptist leaps for joy. There is a consciousness here. There's an awareness here. He is aware not only of his internal circumstances, 
He's aware of the external surroundings. And furthermore, there is a responsiveness within that womb of Elizabeth to the one within the womb of Mary. He is responding to the zygote at this point. I mean, Jesus Christ is only a few days beyond conception. Already he is recognizing personhood. Do you see the implications for our culture today when you begin to think about the significance of this event? One of my former professors in graduate school, Dr. Harold O.J. Brown, in his little booklet uh, entitled The Bible on Abortion, writes, significantly, the Bible does not make a principal distinction between the child after birth and the child in the womb. For example, the same Hebrew word, yelled, is used of children generally, as was the child in the womb in Exodus chapter 21, verse 22. The same Greek word, brephos, is used of the young Hebrew children, slaughtered at Pharaoh's command, according to Acts 7, verse 19, and of the unborn babe John the Baptist in his mother's womb of Luke chapter 1, verse 41 and 44. What you hear me say again on Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, you probably have it memorized by now if you've been around a few years, this is not potential life. This is life with potential. You see. And furthermore, John the Baptist is responding, reacting to one who's only two or three, four days since conception and yet already acknowledging personhood. Extraordinarily so, messiahship. Does it stir you? It should move you. But we're in a culture that's not necessarily moved. God's faithful here. Speaking of faithful, what about old faithful in Yellowstone? Writer tells us, I remember my first visit to old faithful. Rings of Japanese and German tourists surrounded the geyser and their cameras trained like weapons on the famous hole in the ground. A large digital clock stood beside the spot predicting the 24 minutes until the next eruption. My wife and I passed the countdown in the dining room of Old Faithful. The Old Faithful Inn overlooking the geyser. And when the clock reached one minute, we, along with every other diner, left our seats, rushed to the windows to see the big wet event. And then adds, I noticed that immediately, as if on signal, crew of busboys and waiters descended on the tables to refill water glasses and clear away dirty dishes. When the geyser went off, we tourists, well, we oohed and we awed and we, and we took pictures, and there was spontaneous applause. But glancing back over my shoulder, 
I saw that not a single waiter or anyone, in fact, not even those who had finished their chores, looked out at the huge, through the huge windows. Old Faithful had grown entirely too familiar and had lost its power to impress such people. People I'm concerned about that analogy and how it relates to our culture today. We need to see and have a fresh sense of how God has impressed this world by pressing Christ into this world. There ought to be the same sense of awe that John the Baptist had within the womb of Elizabeth, being in the presence of the Messiah within the womb of Mary. And leave it to the mother to interpret all of this at this point, where at the end of verse 44, Elizabeth would say, the baby, Rephas, in my womb, leaped for joy. This is, according to McCullough, beneath the surface construction occurring here. And so, as you and I, as we consider how the story of Christ's birth unfolds, you note, first of all, and this is the, what I'll call the horizontal dimension to this story, the fellowship, the koinonia, the fellowship through Jesus Christ of 39 through 41a, as well as 44b. But I want you now to see that there is a convergence point. Because while fellowship through Jesus Christ is horizontal, it's Elizabeth and Mary. And broadly speaking, it's all believers through all ages who experience koinonia fellowship with one another. There's a reason why we can experience this fellowship, and it's what I will call the vertical dimension, that as you and I, as we, as we consider the story of Christ's birth and how it's unfolding, note second of all, not only the fellowship through Jesus Christ, but furthermore, the lordship of Jesus Christ, because not once, but twice in these verses, Elizabeth is going to make reference to the one within the womb of Mary as her lord, the lord which is an astounding thing now because the forerunner is already doing his work before he has even gotten out of the womb. Wasn't that his purpose? To go before the Messiah and announce to the world the coming of the Messiah? His purpose to die for your sins and mine? Well, already the forerunner is drawing attention not to himself but to Jesus Christ within the womb of Mary Mary has acted on the promise given to her and is in obedience to that promise, putting faith in what God had said via the words of Gabriel. That now brings Elizabeth and Mary together under one roof, two women, but furthermore, the forerunner and the Messiah. Does this grip your, your spirit at this point? Because in the second part of verse 41... You and I are told here that Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Couple that now with what Luke had to say about John the Baptist. Where in chapter 1 and verse 15, Gabriel had shared with 
John the Baptist's father, Zechariah, he, speaking of John the Baptist, will be great before the Lord. He must not drink wine or strong drink. Get this now. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. Draw now a connection to what you and I are told here about Elizabeth, and she was filled with the Holy Spirit, so the one within the womb is filled with the Holy Spirit, and furthermore, the mother is filled with the Holy Spirit, so now there is a dual confirmation unfolding here, inwardly and outwardly. John the Baptist inspiring Elizabeth, Elizabeth through the work of the Holy Spirit, inspiring Mary, God now is profoundly communicating something of significance. Lordship and fellowship converge. And what is the convergence point? Jesus. He's the one that brought them together. So in verse 42, she exclaims with a loud cry, prophetic cry. Here we're seeing, through the work in the Holy Spirit, the beginnings of Christ's earthly ministry. Couple that with the book of Luke, volume two of Luke's writings. The working of the Holy Spirit in the beginning of the early church's ministry. Do you see the consistency here? Do you see connectedness here? Do you see a master plan here? Get below the surface. See what's being constructed. Elizabeth now in 42 is exclaiming with a loud cry, blessed are you among women. Notice it does not say blessed are you above women. As some theologies would have it. But nonetheless, blessed are you among women. She is to be distinguished. But when you and I read in your Newer Testament about the Beatitudes, it stands out to us at this point then is that what Elizabeth is saying to Mary in essence is that you are a living Beatitude. You are blessed and you are a vehicle of blessing. Blessed are you among women and here's the word blessed for a second time. Blessed is the fruit of your womb. Now I want you to see here how lordship connects with fellowship. And also here I want you to see how humility is governed by authority. If Jesus is Lord, and there's where authority is found, look at Elizabeth and here's where Humility resides. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord, see how personal this is? She's got a personal relationship with the Messiah within the womb of Mary. She'd come to me. See her humility? I'm always struck by how people who are so gifted, experiencing gifts, can remain so humble in extraordinary circumstances. Let me walk you back to 2014. And I'm pulling this off of the, the wire 
and describes an account from the Olympics of that time period. Let me pick it up as it tells the story of the start of the Sochi Olympics out in Russia and the story of the Barnes sisters, the biathlon. I want you to seize the sense of the connectedness of fellowship and the humility here. Tracy Barnes made the U.S. Olympic biathlon team, the, the writer pens, last week after the final run of qualifying events ended. Tracy just happens to have a twin sister, Lonnie, who's also a biathlete and a two-time Olympian herself. But Lonnie had fallen ill, missed three of four races that weekend. So when the point rankings were worked out, it seemed Tracy, who narrowly missed qualifying for the 2010 games, would be booking her ticket to Russia, and Lanny would be cheering for her twin sister from the sidelines. But now the rest of the story. Instead, Tracy voluntarily withdrew from the team so that her twin sister could go in her place. The story set the world abuzzing. The writer goes on to say, the sisters went for a hike in the mountains to be alone after the weekend's final race. And that's when Tracy broke the news to Lanny, her younger sister, by five minutes. And they both cried. The writer tells us, we researched this story. And we were moved. Tracy said, if you care enough about a person, you will make any sacrifice for them, even if it means giving up your dreams so that they can realize theirs, she said. Whenever you have a true sense of authority, you have a greater sense of humility. When you go to the cross of Jesus Christ where he died for our sins and connected to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you can't maintain pride in either setting. There is a humility that comes when you embrace Christ's authority where you begin to see how fellowship and lordship intersect in Christ is the convergence point. So now, in utter humility, the older of the two, Elizabeth, says to Mary, the younger of the two, blessed are you, even though Elizabeth is married to the priest. Blessed are you among women. Blessed is the fruit of your womb. She doesn't claim it for her womb. And then the question of humility, and why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord, and there is authority, should come to me. And now a visual word of a verbal expression. For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, begin to think about the sensory aspect of this passage. 
when your greeting came to my ears. The baby in my womb leaped for joy. See how the external and the internal aspects now converge? A third blessing. You're up to verse 45. And blessed is she who believed. Draw a line now back to verse 38 that we concluded last week's exposition. Where Mary had said to Gabriel, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. She goes on record. The angel departs. And now what she is hearing is confirmation of her faith in this promised one. Blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her. And now for the second time from the Lord. My Lord, the Lord, Lordship. And now fellowship on the horizontal level intersects with what we'll call lordship on the vertical level. And Jesus Christ is the meeting place of it all. And so I think about that. Where John the Baptist then within the womb of Mary stirs the heart of Elizabeth, stirs her heart to communicate now with Mary. And we see the forerunner operating here. Because Mary was willing to take the promise walk and communicate effectively. And so the writer puts it this way. Early the next morning, he started out, walked into the lake that night. And when Penn finally went to claim his land, the Indians were surprised. They really didn't think he would take them seriously. But... They kept their promise. It gave him the large area. He trusted their promise. He believed what they said. Question. When the vertical and the horizontal dimensions of God's word come to the forefront in your life, do you believe what God said? Let's stand together. There is so much here, what we might describe this morning in all these services as beneath the surface, where we have the sovereign God operative in ways where perhaps eyesight is not operational, and we need insight to be able to understand. And furthermore, the foresight to see where all this heads. So, Father, thank you for this extraordinary encounter. Thank you, Father, for the way in which this story unfolds. And thank you how all this leads us to the cross of Christ and his resurrection and its implications for our lives today. If anyone in any of these services or in the live stream or attending tonight's concert, not put faith and trust in Jesus Christ. I pray they'll be so seized by the significance of what they've just read. They'll 
they'll say, but of course, it can't be any other way. I put my faith and trust in Christ and Christ alone. We commit them to you now. In Jesus' name.